My name's Will. I work here at Crossroads. Um, this summer, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we've been moving really fast. Um, in the course of about four months, we've done 17 different sermons. We've covered 42 chapters of the Old Testament as well as a few uh, psalms. We've covered about 50 years of time in this man, David's life. And a lot of churches uh, reserve kind of like the best stuff, usually for the fall when all the students come back and all that kind of stuff. But um, this is a lot of text and a lot of life application. And we've done it here on purpose this summer. We've purposefully been sipping on the good wine all summer long. We're not waiting for everyone to come back to give it out, right? And the reason that we're doing this is because we want to take seriously this summer our relationship with the Lord. We don't want to wait for the clouds of fall and the predictable schedules to be the thing that motivates us to have a relationship with Jesus. We don't want to look at the summer as a time off where we just kick it and, and whatever. We want to pursue him. He's worthy of that. And so we've been looking at this, uh, this story of David's life. And if you were here last week, you heard Dan uh, use this analogy of cruise control. And I don't know if it affected anyone else, but it really affected me. This analogy of cruise control, it did two things in my heart, two really deep things. The first thing it did is it made me really wish that I could have grown up in Houghton Lake, Michigan, and just experienced Dan as a child. Is anyone else with me? I don't understand. I don't have one story like that of my entire childhood. He's got one about every situation. And I really feel like someone needs to undergo uh, a movie to capture the, not, the life of a northern Michigan uh, church boy, right? So, um, but the second thing that it did in my heart was it convicted me. He said that uh, cruise control, if not used properly, can cause a lot of damage. And you can picture that, right? You can picture him driving backwards, going 40 miles an hour with the cruise control set. And you're just like, there's no good ending to that. <laughs> and, and if we don't use cruise control right, then it, it has massive effects on, on my life if I'm the one driving. But it also, it can, it can cause a lot of damage to people who are just around us. Cruise control hurt David, but it also hurt his family, his kids, and it hurt his nation, the nation of Israel too. And I was left looking at some of the situations that I'm experiencing in my life. Bless you. And I'm wondering if any of those situations, if how I respond to those situations could be changed by the presence of God. All the stress that I feel, all the anxieties that I feel, all the listlessness that I feel in my life. I wonder what that would do. I wonder what God's presence would do to those kind of things. Because he promises peace. And so when I'm experiencing these things that are anti what he promises, I'm just, I want to be near him. And I want to encourage you guys to ask that question of yourself today too. Could your responses to life situations, not necessarily life situations, but could the res how you respond to them be changed and affected by the presence of God and awareness of his nearness? And I think something that we forget is that unlike cruise control, uh, slipping into, um, taking your foot off the pedal 
with God, it doesn't just happen. Cruise control, there's a button. You have to do some steps to like get it engaged, right? But in our lives, in real life, it's almost a default. That if we don't do anything about our walk with God, we just kind of lose. It's a spiritual discipline. It's called a practice for a reason. And it's important that we remind each other of this. Like, I'm not just saying this so you're like, oh yeah, that sounds great. I'm saying it because as a body of Christ, as a family, we can look at each other and say, you can look at me. And you can say, Will, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Will, you need to keep your heart fixed on his heart. You need to be going after the things that he wants you to go after. It's why the the writer of the letter of Hebrews says to the people, Consider how we can just be together. Consider how our love for one another can spur each other on towards even more love, even greater things. We're doing great things, but even just meeting together, we could do be- better things. We could, we could keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's what happens when we're doing life in community. And this passage from Hebrews, it's not, a pl- it's not like a defensive church. It's a plea from a person to a real people to keep their eyes, hearts fixed on the Savior. Because if they don't, what happens is this term Christian becomes just this label. When Christian was never meant to just be a label, Christianity is meant to define who you are in the deepest level. It means literally little Christ. We're supposed to be little walking models, mirrors of who he is. Not just something to be printed on dog tags or whatever. It's more than that. We need encouragement from each other to do the same things. Encouraging each other to keep our eyes on Jesus. And whether it's through our Sunday morning gatherings, whether it's through house churches or men's ministry or women's ministry or young adult ministry or or, our youth group or whatever it is, we can encourage each other. And there's one other thing that I want to encourage us to do, and that's, that's get some people around you in your life who really care about you, who really love your heart and someone that you can trust your heart with. People that don't rejoice when you're hurting and struggling, but they are for you and your family, who want to see you do well, who want to see you uh, connected to the Father and living out his kingdom through your life. Because those are the kind of people, people that you really trust, they're the kind of people who can say, hey, it feels like you're coasting through this a little bit. And I just want to remind you to keep your eyes and heart fixed on Jesus. It seems to me that this, if David were to take some of these things and, and apply them in his life, then maybe this cruise control never would have happened. If David had some friends that he could trust and his friends could say, hey, it looks like you're, you're slipping away here, then some of these ramifications of, of his life maybe wouldn't have been so vast. I don't know. All I do know is that today in our, our text from 2 Samuel, we're still in the thick of David, making some poor choices in how he relates to God and not knowing the heart of God very well because he's just been distancing himself. And so um, we're going to look at this text in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. Maybe there's some people that could hand out some Bibles because uh, we're reading a full chapter here, and it's, it's a lot. And it'd be really helpful for you to have a Bible. So there's Bibles outside the doors. And if someone could just grab a couple. Dan, thank you. I see it. 
Phil, thanks. Um, 2 Samuel is like the ninth or 10th book in the Old Testament. So in these blue Bibles that they'll pass out, it's page 226. I don't know what page it is in your Bible, so you can find it. Uh, Once you have it, uh, what we do here at Crossroads is we stand for the reading of God's word because we know that we come to it with anticipation. And just like uh, a running back breaking through the line of scrimmage and open field running, everyone's to their feet cheering, that's what we're anticipating right now, that the very word of God would go forth, that we'd hear it. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 24 says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. And so the king said to Joab, the commander of his armies, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But, but why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king and went to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Arar, south of the town in the gorge, and they went through Gad onto Jezer. They went to Gilead, to the region of Tatim Hodashi, and onto Dan Jan, and around towards Sidon. When they went toward the fortress of Tyre, and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites, finally they went to Beersheba and the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, and now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, The word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you one of three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into, the, into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong, but they 
These are sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Arunah looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered. So I can build an altar to the Lord, and the plague will, on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing, bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an offering to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. There's probably a rule that you're not allowed to do this, but, and it would be my second, like, someone should make a movie about this plea, but this is crazy. This story, it, it hurts my brain to think about all the things that are happening here. It's, it's got all the makings of a good movie. It's got a ruddy, handsome man who's a king over Israel, sits on his throne, makes some poor choices, there's death and destruction and plague and all this kind of thing. And even in the end, a little bit of redemption with Aruna's threshing floor. Um, but one of the reasons I love the Bible so much is because this is not a movie. This chapter is something that we call the Word of God. And we get the privilege of looking at it, reading it, holding it in our hands, studying it. We get to learn the character of God through stories like this and also learn from the mistakes of someone like David. More and more I read it, the more and more I'm so happy that David is in our Bible because he gives me a little, a little slack every once in a while. There's this verse in Romans too that kind of points to this. It's in Romans 15 uh, verse 4. says that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures, and for the encouragement they might provide, we might have hope. And so this morning, it's a privilege to, with you guys, look at this story and get encouragement and be taught by it and have hope because of that. There's a couple things uh, right out the gates that, that I think that if we had a little clarification to would help us understand what's really happening because starting in verse 1, I'm confused. Um, if you've been reading it all through Second uh, Samuel, you'll come to chapter 4, and it'll have nothing to do with chapter, or chapter 24. It'll have nothing to do with chapter 23. It just says, again, the Lord is mad at Israel. And uh, when we study this on Tuesday mornings, a couple guys get together and read through these passages, and we're all like flipping through the Bible trying to find out why God is mad with Israel. And, it, and it's just not there. It's really strange. It's not there. But I want to make an argument that while a specific sin is omitted, it doesn't mean that we can't know 
what causes God to be angry. All throughout the Old Testament, God's anger only ever burns against Israel because the people have turned their back on him. They forget who he is. They forget who they are in light of it. And they say, we don't need you anymore. We get a little bit uh, caught up because we think that sin like confounds God or it confuses him. And he, he gets so ma- angry when we lie. But actually, God has a pretty good grasp on sin. And even in the time of David in our Old Testament, God has thought through all the ways that people could offend him and sin against him. And he's made all these ways, these sacrifices for people to be forgiven of their sins. Not to say that there aren't ramifications for sin. David's been learning that the the hard way. But there's also forgiveness. And it takes more than just these sins to anger God. And the reason that that's hard for me to understand at first is because I want God to be like me. I want him to be like me. I want his anger to flare up quickly because my anger flares up quickly. You can ask my my, uh, daughters, who gets mad quick? Who do you know that gets mad quick? Daddy. They'll say me, you know? I don't know. And the things that I get mad about really in the long term rarely matter, right? It's like too much peanut butter on a sandwich or something. Like I get mad at things and I want God to be like me. I think he must be like me. I view, I view humanity or I view God through humanity, the lens, rather than viewing the humanity through the lens of God. Remembering that we're created in him, his image, not, we're not creating him in our image. We think that he'll act like us, that he'll plan like us, that he'll make decisions like us, but he's just not like us. In fact, the way that God has revealed himself in the Bible in a really serious way, I know you're thinking, Jesus, right, him too. But think about when God uh, reveals himself to Moses. God, Moses says, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. And God says, okay. He puts him in the cleft of a rock and allows Moses to see his back. And as the Lord is passing by Moses, it's not his back that causes awe in Moses. It's his, it's his voice. That God says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, forgiving rebellion, forgiving sin. This very name of God that Moses was in awe of brings me hope today. It refreshes my love for the Lord. And it might be why you're here today. Because you've been in contexts where, where people aren't slow to anger. And they take that out on, on you. But you're looking for a God who is slow to anger. And you're being drawn to him. So what is it then that makes God mad? It's this idea that's crept into the outer edges of David's mind and it's seeping now into his actions. This, uh, this, this thought that, hey, maybe, maybe I'm good. David has this peace in his kingdom. No one's ever done that before. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm good. God becomes angry when his people turn their backs on him. They forget who he is. And they start trusting in themselves. I'm sure that you've heard it say, as as the king goes, so goes the nation. While David's on cruise control, perhaps the whole nation is following suit. 
And so look what God does. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against David and he incited David to go and take a census. Another somewhat uh, confusing part of the text in my mind, because when I read this story, oftentimes I try to put a synopsis together of like, what's happening here? And the synopsis was like this, okay? God's mad. We don't know why. But he call, makes David take a census. David does it, but that makes God mad. And then God punishes all of Israel for David obey, obeying him. And I'm just left like, What? It seems crazy. It seems uncharacteristic of who God is. But at the same time, I don't feel a huge need to defend God. This, this creator of all things, the one who's knitting, knitting us together, who, who knows us, who knows every word before it's on my mouth, do I have to stand him up like a piece of cardboard and say, he's really good? Uh, is he like a relative or a friend who is always a jerk around people and you always have to say, no, if you just get to know him, he's a good guy. I know he's acting like a crazy person, but if you just knew him, he's a good God. You like him. He's God. He can do what he wants. That's my platform. God can do what he wants. But also, there's a couple things in the text that I want to just bring, make you aware of that will that'll help you think about God a little bit. The first thing is just think about this uh, phrase in the book of James, this letter of James in this first chapter. He says, remember, when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me because God is never tempted to do wrong and God will never tempt anyone to do wrong. And so tempt and incite, they're different words, but they each mean encouragement towards something. And so is God tempting or encouraging David to do this? Maybe. First Chronicles uh, chapter 21 has the exact same story as this one. Uh, the chronicler wrote it uh, and years and years later, writing it to a people who are coming out of exile back into the country. And he says, chapter 21 starts, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. So is it God doing it? Is it Satan doing it? Is it God using Satan and the sin in order to bring about something that's ultimately really good? Those are all really uh, nice biblical ways of answering that question. David listens to God. He goes ahead with the census, even though all of his companions are saying, don't do it. Look at Joab. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, bless God and bless you, but don't do this. This is a mistake. Don't do this. But uh, David's command prevails. The, the men go out to count. And here's where I really want us to use our thinking caps and ask the question, what is David's sin? What is David's sin? I've read this passage over and over, and I'm supposing that you have heard the story or read it for yourselves, and uh, maybe you've had the same thought as me, that David's sin is counting his army. Right? 
After all, it's a military uh, census. The fact that Joab and the commanders of the army carry this out. The fact that all the men are listed as able-bodied men who can handle a sword. Proves that this is a defense strategy. It's David flexing his muscles. Quick side note, I think that able-bodied man who can handle a sword is a pretty good description of a man. And I usually get referred to as not Dan and not Max, but the other one with a beard. So I'm, I told my wife, able-bodied man who can handle a sword. The sin, right, is David wanting to know the extent of his strength. The sin is his pride. He's forgotten uh, that he's fought numerous battles before. He's killed lion. He's killed bear. He killed Goliath. He's, He's fought the Lord's fights. But he forgets that the Lord has always fought with him and that numbers have never been an issue. So he counts. And this is the right train of thought. It's a good train of thought. And these are things that we should be talking about and asking each other. Are you trusting the Lord Or are you busy counting things around you that you can place your trust in? Are you busy counting your army? Counting your money, counting your acres, counting your Pokemon, counting your your followers, your likes, your sphere of influence, as we call it. Are you quantifying your abilities? Are you identifying and putting boundaries on what's yours, forgetting all the while that every good and perfect gift comes from? Above. Above. Something that David forgets is that God has David's best interests in mind. Something that we forget is that God, he cares about us. He knows our name and he wants what's good for us. Always. If David needed more men, he'd provide more men. God is trustworthy to David. He's been faithful to David. He's shown himself faithful to David. And all this is true, all this is direct, and all this has meaningful application into our lives. And part of me just wants to say, amen, let's go home, stop trusting in yourself and trust in the Lord. But if we did that, I think we'd be missing out on something here. Because I'm not 100% convinced that even though pride is a sin, I'm not convinced that David's pride here warrants a nationwide plague, the death of 70,000 people. And I, I, I just want to dig a little bit more. And so uh, let's look together at verse 10, okay? Verse 10, David was conscious stricken after he counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And now, Lord, I beg of you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. After the men come back, after nine months and 20 days, David is conscious stricken. He realizes his sin. He realizes that he has done something very foolish. And to see what that foolish thing is, I'm going to take you back a few hundred years. Because that same Moses who saw the Lord, who heard the Lord's voice and his name, spoke to God face to face, and God gave him instructions. He gave him the law, is what we call it. And found in the law, in Exodus chapter 30, God gives some pretty detailed instruction about, guess what? How to take a census. And so it's important for your eyes to see. So if you have that Bible, flip back to Exodus 
chapter 30. We'll start in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he's counted. Then, get this, no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than half shekel. The poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It'll be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. Now, after reading that, after hearing that, I think that we have a better understanding of why this horrible plague comes about and devastates much of Israel. This David, he's a man after God's heart. We've all heard him say that. Even though he falls on his face, God is able to look at him and say, this is a man after my heart. David, now as king over Israel, the law of Moses commands that whoever is king over Israel takes the first five books of our Bible and writes them out by hand. So David knew or should have known or knew at some point in his life that there is a way to take a census, God's way. David should have collected the money, but he didn't. And I I see Joab here as like saying, come on, what are you doing? Why else would the man in charge of the military operations be upset about finding out the power of his force? I think it's because Joab remembered something that David is slowly forgetting. And it's more than just the money. Joab remembers that the blood that is flowing in his body is the same blood that was enslaved in Egypt. The same blood that saw the angel of the Lord pass over in a plague and kill the Egyptians. The same blood that was led out and across the the Red Sea on dry ground. The blood in Joab, the blood in David, was, was led through the desert, who heard the voice of the Lord at the mountain, who saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, who followed a God into the promised land, watching God make a way over and over again when there seemed to be no way. David's sin is disobedience. And that disobedience is a result of him forgetting the role that he gets to play in God's story. David is a major player in this story, but not because he fights the battles and kills the giant, not because he's, he's one king over a unified north and south Israel, not because he's the one that God made a covenant with. It's because that God sees David as vital to bringing about restoration, his restoration. David himself has been redeemed. David himself has been restored. He's been atoned for. And now, when he has the opportunity to remind all of Israel and Judah that they're more than just a number, that they're more than just a nameless, faceless, one out of 1.3 million fighting men, 
to remind them that they too have been atoned for, that God has made a way for them to draw near to him as his covenant people, that they are the apple of his eye. David neglects to do it. Every person that's being counted, the text says, crosses over from here to there. And I just picture it as they're crossing over and as they're giving their money, these, these commanders are supposed to look at him in the eyes and just say, the Lord has made a way for you. He's made a way for you to draw near to himself. And he'll continue to do it because he loves you. David forgets to remind the people that they belong to the Lord. His sin is ignoring his responsibility as God's king to carry out the atonement of Israel. And it's a big deal to God because God cares about that atonement. I can't get over how God takes advantage of every opportunity to remind people of who they are and what he's done for them. There's atonement in sin sacrifice. There's atonement in fellowship offerings. There's atonement in in, uh, guilt offerings. There's even atonement uh, for sins that have been unknowingly committed. There's a day on the calendar for all of Israel called the Day of Atonement when everyone is to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem and they just celebrate his atonement. They celebrate what the Lord has done for them. It's almost as if God is looking at every situation that humans will encounter and they're saying, I want my atonement to be there. I want my story of deliverance to be there. Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna eat dinner with your family? Tell your kids, tell the kids the story of the Red Sea. They'll love it. Tell them how I, I bought them out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery and led them through the water. Oh, you had, you're celebrating the birth of a new son? Wait, wait, wait. Circumcise him on the eighth day. Name him then and remind him, even that little baby, that he's part of the covenant that I made with their forefathers. You're taking a census? Amazing. You're going to see every man 20 years and older, every head of the household? Look him in the eyes. Tell him what I did for him. Same way that God made a way... Uh, over and over again. For their ancestors, David's meant to tell them, God will make a way for you. But David doesn't do it. And you know what? Uh, This reminds me of me a little bit. And maybe you can see yourself in there too. We don't like to do this, but I forget what God has done in my life to bring me to where I am right now. I forget that like Zechariah puts it, I was a stick in the fire. God pulled me out. Even more severe, that I, I forget that I've been atoned for by God. That, that we belong to him and that we play a major role in his story of redeeming the world. That his heart and character ought to be so known by us that we embody his love, his kindness in a way that's so appealing to people who don't know it. People who really need it. That we are so familiar with God's deliverance and atonement that we'd be looking for those who haven't experienced it and we'd be bringing them in. We'd say, oh, you're struggling? God is the lifter of burdens and he wants to help you. You're lost. You don't know where to turn in your life. God will lead you just like he's led generations of men and women before you. You're hurting. You're broken. You're sick. My God is a healer and a restorer. He'll do it in your life. But we forget who God is. We forget what he's done, and ultimately what we're called to do, how we're called to represent him. 
David failed in ignoring the atonement of God. And I'm right there with him a lot of times. But David realizes it. And David uh, has a response that I think we can learn from today. David sins. He, he recognizes his sin. And I'll look at, let's look at how God deals with his sin. It says, in the course of the night, God speaks to the seer, a prophet named Gad, and tells Gad to go to David and say, this is what the Lord says. Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? God gives David a choice between these three punishments and in the end, it's a plague that wins out. And uh, to be honest, I'm not sure why there's the, the three choices for David, but I do see God's grace in that. I see God teaching David something teaching David that as, his, as God's representative, his actions, they affect other people. And God leaves the choice up to him perhaps to show that it's David who ultimately brings this upon the people. And David, uh, in great distress on hearing those words, who has seen firsthand the hellish nature of war, who, who knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty, he chooses in light of the mercy of God for the plague. Maybe remembering that God is the one who not only uh, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, steadfastness, who forgives rebellion and sin. The next line says, yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. Verse 15 says it this way. So the Lord sent the plague. And from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 people died. And I want to make mention of something right here, something that I didn't expect all along in the story of David. Uh, We see him really in stark contrast to the king that was before him, King Saul. And it's not that David uh, didn't sin as much as King Saul or didn't do as bad. Actually, it seems like David outdid Saul in sin. But what David did do is he acknowledges sin, and he sought God's forgiveness, and he repented. He turned around and walked away from his sin. The difference between David and Saul is that David's man enough to admit that he did it wrong. It's pretty much all we've been preaching this summer. If you've come on a Sunday, you've heard it. Repent. Let's model David. Let's repent. You know that angels rejoice over a sinner repenting, and forgiveness is brought. And that's what I thought I would see in David's story. But the thing that sticks out to me so much is that here David asks for forgiveness and the consequence of his sin still comes. Again, we think that, that repentance is something like, uh, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. That it's a formula that we can just do and not, not be held accountable for what we've done. But while repentance and, re- repentance and remorse over sin does lead to forgiveness, it does not stay, it does not stay the consequence of our actions or the effects that it has on others. I mean, there have been so many men who have committed adultery, who have asked God for forgiveness, who have been forgiven by God and have still seen their families ripped out of their hands, still seen their wives and kids walk out the door. The consequences are still there. It's what we see. David repents in verse 10, the night before Gad comes to him with the word of the Lord. It makes me think that God, he's listening to David's prayer. He's forgiving David. 
But if God weren't to bring the plague that he said he would, then it wouldn't, then God would be a liar. The plague goes out from God, and almost as if mocking the earlier words of David, it follows a path of his census going throughout the whole land from Dan to Beersheba. This whole episode, it's otherworldly. It's hard for me to even think about. You see this angel of God moving over the land, striking down thousands and thousands of people, reminding this generation probably of, again, back in Egypt when the angel of the Lord went out and killed the Egyptians and freed them. But now they're on the other side of that sword. The text even says that David saw the angel killing people, moving through the land, the sight of which caused him to plead, God, I'm the shepherd. These are just sheep. Don't let let judgment fall on them for what I've done. As, with the, as the plague was moving towards Jerusalem, even God, I don't, know, I don't know how to handle this, but even God couldn't deal with it, couldn't handle the devastation. And he says to the angel, enough, no more, withdraw your hand. And that's beautiful to me. It's beautiful that that's my God and that I wish that that image of who he is would permeate a little bit into culture. And it would replace this white-bearded, mad guy with a lightning bolt sitting on a throne ready to kill whoever uh, turns against him. It's not who we serve. And this God, in our text, is, is actually sorry that this destruction is happening, but still faithful to his word. And you know that God hasn't changed, right? That the God here who is sorrowful over uh, the consequences of David's sin, the God who's deeply saddened by it is the same God who looks on us with compassion when we are reaping the things that we've sown. God delights in showing mercy. And, not but, and, like a good father, knows how to reprove a son or a daughter. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're dealing with, but I do know that there's so many things going on in this text that we can all probably identify with something. Some of us are just reeling in the wake of cruise control, not knowing the peace of God in times of trouble because we have distanced ourselves from him. Some of us are too busy numbering the things that we have, that, that we're counting our army, forgetting that it doesn't really belong to us in the first place, and we minimize God in doing so. Some of us are doing things our own way, neglecting God's God's word, saying, I can do it better. I have a better way. Others are just being weighed down by the consequence of their sin. But no matter where you're at today, the story of David's senses shows us that there's only one cure. There's only one cure. That cure is a sacrifice. Look together at how the book of 2 Samuel ends. God tells David to go to Aruna's threshing floor, the place uh, the angel stopped. A threshing floor, if you don't know, it's a big open room with big doors on either side so that the wind can come in and it can blow away the chaff, the stuff of the wheat that that isn't needed. They separate these big piles of, of grain from the stalk and then the wind comes and blows away everything else. David asked to buy that land, that property, from Aruna so he can make a sacrifice to the Lord. And Aruna does what any of us would do when we see a king coming. We'd bow down and whatever he asks, Aruna says, I'll give it to you. 
I'll give you the land. It's yours. I'll give you the ox. It's yours. I'll give you the wood even for the altar. It's yours. But David's reply is one of the most influential things that I see in his whole life. David says, no. I'm not going to offer God something that costs me nothing. Aruna then, okay, sells the land, sells the wood and the ox to David. He makes a sacrifice to God. And the Lord there answers David's plea. And the plague is stopped in Israel. Do you know that for a thousand years, from this moment for the next thousand years, Aruna's threshing floor becomes the place of sacrifice for all Israel. This place that David bought from this Jebusite, 2 Chronicles 3.1 says that it's the very threshing floor where Solomon, David's son, in fulfillment of what the Lord spoke to David, it's the same place that David builds the temple of the Lord, the house of God, the place that will contain his raw Shekinah presence on earth, right there. This plot of land becomes the place where the people follow in their footsteps of the king. They learn this pattern of sin, repentance, sacrifice, forgiveness, sin, repentance, sacrifice, forgiveness, sin, repentance, sacrifice, forgiveness. And with every animal that is slain, every drop of blood spilled in that place, there's this hope every time that someday a sacrifice of a perfect lamb will come and will, will for once and for all put an end to the problem and the consequence of sin. And this is where I'm just in awe who Jesus is. He comes, this spotless lamb of God. He comes to take away the sin of the world who came from God as the ultimate means of bringing us back into relationship with the Father who doesn't fail like all those kings who went before him, but he remembers the atonement of God and he offers the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus, knowing what it takes, lays down his life once for all. He who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf so that we might have right standing in a relationship with the Father. The Bible calls this the free gift of God's grace. And while no human deserves it and nobody can earn it, there's no amount that you could pay for it, David knew something. It's costly. Jesus said it'll cost your whole life. And I want to just ask today, in light of God giving something to us that cost him something, what are we giving to the Lord? What does it mean for you when you read, offer your bodies up as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God? And just, I want to challenge you, is that label of Christian something that is just kind of over you? Was it written on your very soul? Is it something that defines you? Is your life found in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus? Is your breath his breath? We don't do this really ever at Crossroads, and it's not a big deal. But I just think a lot of times when we're contemplating the sacrifice of our lives, chairs get in the way. 
And I've been, uh, I've got to preach and, and lead worship at this, uh, this old Wesleyan like revival tent meeting thing where there's all these kids there and there's this, there's this tiny fence in the front. It's like this big. I didn't know what it was for, but I learned that it's an altar. And I learned that for these kids, a lot of times, just getting up and taking some steps really uh, cement some things in your hearts. And so there's nothing special about the stage. And I'm not even going to say you need to come forward. You can go to the sides. You can go to the back. You can go to lunch. I don't, it's not, I mean, it's not about me. I want to challenge you though to offer something to the Lord this morning. To take inventory of what your life has been like. And I want to call you to offer something this morning that costs something. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Just in awe of who you are and really thankful that um, you came as God's perfect king to make atonement for us. And the same God who cared so much about all of those Israelites who led them through the, through the wandering faithfully. God, you're leading people in this room. You're revealing yourself to them. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us courage this morning to respond to you. Knowing that uh, it's not about moving, it's not about coming or whatever, that, that man looks at the outward appearance, but that you, God, you look at the heart and you can penetrate everyone right now and just say, where's your heart? Holy Spirit, we give you permission to do that. We thank you for how you've been faithful to us. Amen.